I have the honor of reading scripture to you this morning, and I'm going to read it from Colossians, first chapter, verses 28 through 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. This is the word of the Lord. Let me add my greetings to you. My name's Lloyd Shadrach. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. We say that to remind those or to let people know who are guests. You know, we are a church with two congregations, one in Brentwood and one in Franklin. And uh, we have two teaching pastors. I'm one of the teaching pastors. And then we have a lead pastor named Rob Sweet. And Rob's a teaching pastor. And it's rooted in our conviction that uh, not just together is better, but together is biblical. And we believe in a plurality even in leadership. So that even from the pulpit, we want you to get the word and not a personality or a person per se. So Rob's teaching at Brentwood this morning and, and I taught there last week, I'm here. Next week, Rob will be teaching here. So I want you to be aware of that. If you have your Bibles or your booklets, we're gonna open them this morning to Colossians. We're in the last two verses of Colossians. We're in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. At the 2004 Olympic Games, you may have recalled this story, some of you. Matt Emmons was down to his final shot to take his second gold medal of these games. He was a sharpshooter. Picture these sharpshooters, you know, these tricked out guns, you know, and they're shooting down a lane. It's almost like a bowling alley with a lane here and the next shooter's here and the next shooter's here, but they're just lined up side by side as they take these shots. Uh, Eamons at the time, was so far ahead, you all, all he needed was an average shot to win his second gold. Well, his last shot wasn't just average. It was great. But with that shot, Eamons went from surefire gold to eighth place and no medal at all because Matt Eamons had made this error they call a crossfire. So on his last shot, when he looked down his lane and he, took, he put his sight on the target, he had inadvertently put his sight on the target in the lane next to him. And so he made a great shot on the wrong target. And what I want to suggest this morning is that we can make the same mistake. And what I mean is you and I can live a great life and find at the end, we hit the wrong target. Now, I want to describe how that happens. Now, this is just in our context. This wouldn't be true of everyone around the world, per se, but well, we grew up pretty much here in Middle Tennessee. It happens like this. You, you, it, at about five or six, you, you're, you're placed in a current, quite frankly, and that current is so powerful that it will carry you your whole life. And it goes like this. You start in five or six years old, you're putting this current called school and school carries you all the way to 12th grade and you graduate. Some go on to college, some maybe not. And those who go on to college and some of those who don't, after either one, you start work and uh, you begin work and you begin earning a living and you try and save a little money to, to, to go on vacations, to enjoy life, and you keep 
working. And then the inevitable challenges of life arise and, and you're addressing them. And y'all, and this is you know, where we live. And then life just gets so busy that we find ourselves carried along by this current of life until one day we realize my parents who put me on the bus in kindergarten are now older. And I have the privilege and responsibility of caring for older parents and not just my own kids and myself. And life continues to happen to us until that current literally dumps us out into what I'll call the bay of retirement, if some of us ever make it there. And then, you know, the bay still has current, so it swirls us around until it pushes us, pushes us out into the ocean of old age where you die. And there's your life, you know, in two minutes. Um, and I don't think it's that far-fetched, to be honest. I really don't. Um, we never, if, if we never intentionally pick the target and the right target, I think at least in America, that the current of the American dream is too powerful to, to resist. I, I wanna suggest that the good life and, and all that comes with that is the default setting for our life. And if you and I never reset the default setting, I'm telling you, you will be carried by this current and you can get to the end of your life and realize I was caught up in the current, but I was never, never about the right target. It's really, really sobering. Well, in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, it's just read to us, we'll go through it again. Paul describes the, capital T, capital H, capital E, the target. He, it's so clear. He says, here's what we were made to live for. No one is gonna leave here, okay? When you leave here in the next you know, 30, 40 minutes, no one will leave here wondering, why am I on the planet? What's my purpose in life? What's my reason for being? Well, Paul is gonna answer those questions for us. I wanna give us a context to get us up to these last two verses. You know, the whole of chapter one, really, Paul is laying out the argument for the centrality, it's our theme of the whole Colossian study, the centrality of Jesus. We say the, the sufficiency of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus, which is why when Rob unveiled the box last week, which I thought was brilliant, and he lifted that box, and under that was the mystery that the previous verses speak of, and there was the, the elements for the Lord's table. In other words, there was Jesus, the person work of Christ. That is the mystery. That, that is our reason for being. That's, that's, the, the, that's the highest calling in life. That's the mystery revealed in our text to the, to the Gentiles that Jesus is for everyone. If I summarize the message this morning in one phrase, it would simply be this. If Christ is the center of all things, then Paul logically tells us Jesus alone is worth living for. That's it. Jesus alone is worth living for. Now, I want you to follow along in the text itself. And if you've got your journals, you want to grab your journal. We're still marking this up and we're putting boxes around references to Christ. You'll notice in verse 28, we begin with a box around him. And the passage goes like this, him we proclaim. 
warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ, a box around Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his, box around that, reference to Christ, his energy that he, box around he, because it's a reference to Christ, that he powerfully works within me. I want to say that Paul, in these verses, in, in, in really a fundamental and simple outline, I believe, gives us the what, the why, and the how of our mission in life. And I'm gonna let what, why, and how be our guide as we walk through these two verses. So with that in mind, let's start with the what, the what. And it's the first three words of verse 28. Him we proclaim. Said another way, because in the Greek, that's, that's how the Greek reads. Him is in the emphatic position. Him we proclaim. Now, we don't, kinda, we don't talk that way per se, so I wanna put the phrase in a, in a more uh, familiar vernacular. It would be this. What, what's the what? What do we do? We tell others about Jesus. That is the core and essence of our mission in life. We tell others about Jesus. Now, it's like we often, with good intentions, we run that phrase through uh, that telephone game you know, where you, you, you whisper to someone a phrase and, you know, so I say, we tell others about Jesus. And then they have to turn to the next person and say, we tell Jesus other people. And then they go to the next one, Jesus told me to tell you. And then it goes on and it comes out the back end, nothing like we said. It's just all confusing. And uh, we're not immune to this. We're not immune to this. With the best of intentions, we do this like this. Like the simple fact of the matter is, why do we exist as a church? To tell others about Jesus. But you know, when it comes out of our lips, it comes out like this. We exist to glorify God by making disciples and help, it, in making disciples by helping people find wholehearted life in Jesus. That's our mission statement. I think it's fabulous but it's, not as, it's absolutely not as clear and simple as we tell others about Jesus. Now, I could take any church mission statement on the planet and run it through that and throw it under the bus. And I only throw ours under there because it's ours. But I also say it to make the point, there's an utter simplicity to our mission. Now, we add to it to contextualize it, to put it in our time and place as do other churches. And as does Paul, as he builds around that particular phrase. But can we agree it will never be anything less than or more simple than we tell others about Jesus. It's worth asking this question. If that is our mission, how much of our life is marked by that mission? Really? This is, let me tell you why you're on the planet to tell us. So how much, of your, how much of our lives are marked by that clear mission? Some of you may be asking, well, Lloyd, that's Paul's mission. And, and I, I would agree with you. It's a good question. You, know, you go, my goodness, he's an apostle. He wrote half the New Testament. I mean, what, look, he's, you know, he's arguably the most influential human being that walked the planet other than, the, other than Jesus Christ himself. 
I'm a homemaker, Lloyd. Uh, I'm a teacher. I'm a contractor, whatever we may say. And it is a good point that I don't wanna move past because if this is just Paul's mission, then we can move on. But I wanna suggest the text itself and the text of scripture itself tells us something different. Start here. With the text itself, it says, him, we, plural, proclaim. Who's the we? So it's more than Paul's because he says we. Who's the we? Yeah, you might not get it right from that text. He said us, you might not get it from that text. I can tell you if you go to chapter, two, chapter one, verse one, I can tell you this, we know this. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. So we know the we is Paul and Timothy. Is everybody with me so far? So it's not just Paul's mission, it's Timothy's. But I want you to flip in your booklets or your Bible over to chapter four. Take a look at chapter four and just, just note this. Chapter four, verse seven, Paul's writing and says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activity. So this letter is, in a sense, this mission is also Tychicus's. Who is Tychicus? Me neither, you know. Who is Tychicus? I don't know, but he was with Paul and he's a Christian. Verse nine, and with him Onesimus. Well, Onesimus, we do know, is a former slave, ran away from Philemon. Paul's gonna write to Philemon and say, your slave has become a Christian. Accept him back, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. So here's Onesimus. And then verse 10, Aristarchus. Don't know that guy, but he apparently is in jail with Paul. And Mark, cousin of Barnabas. We know Mark wrote the gospel in Mark. Verse 12, Epaphras. Epaphras we know. We just know him because he's the one that Paul says brought him the news about Colossae and the Christians there. And then in verse 14, he says, Luke, the physician. There you go. We know Luke. He wrote that gospel. And then Demas. Don't know who Demas is. What's the point I'm making and Paul makes by including all these nobody names? Who is the we of that verse, you tell me now. Hello. All of us, what you said at the beginning. The we is us, you all. So you can't, we can't slide out from that. May we never slide out from that privilege and responsibility. When Jesus gave the great commission and commanded the disciples to go in all the nations and make disciples of all nations, you know, he said, and I am with you to the end of the age, meaning... Uh, it's not just for you guys, you ladies. It's, it's for all who know me until I return at the end of this age to go and make disciples. Everybody with me on this? So this mission is not just Paul the Apostles. It's the Christian's mission in life. You know, in the book of Acts uh, and in and the epistles, we don't see them saying phrases like, uh, I'm making disciples. I'm gonna go make a disciple today. We don't hear that. What we do hear them saying over and over is we proclaim Jesus. Him we proclaim. We proclaim the gospel. We proclaim to you eternal life. The message that we heard from him, we proclaim to you. The proclamation of the gospel is the first and fundamental step of making disciples of all nations. We tell others about Jesus. One other thought, one or two I wanna offer on this is to proclaim Jesus requires that you open your mouth and you tell. 
It's not enough to say, well, I let my actions speak. You know, actions are more important than words. That's not biblical. And that's not true. That's like saying, you know, breathing in is more important than breathing out. Really? Really more important? I, I thought, I don't know that you could do one without the other. That's the point of the proclamation of the gospel. There's no proclamation apart from us opening our mouths and proclaiming. Yes, the life needs to match the message, but they're inseparable. Paul himself writes it to, um, in Ephesians, or Romans 10, four, he says, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? Someone tells them. Look again at verse 28. I wanna grab these last two words in the first part. He says, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. There's, a, there's a, an answer to our question. Can you proclaim Jesus without opening your mouth? I don't think so because you can't warn nor teach without opening our mouths. And that gives us the negative and the positive. There's a, in the proclamation of Christ, there's a warning. There, it's our responsibility to help people go, that's the wrong way. Don't go that way. And then the positive side of, this is the way of wisdom. You see that both required in the proclamation of Jesus. The what, we tell others about Jesus. The why, why do we, why do we do this? Why do we tell others about Jesus and do it with warning and instruction? Well, that's the second part of verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? That we may present everyone mature in Jesus. You all, this is the purpose clause in that sentence. It is the, you know, the why, answering the why question. Well, that we may present everyone complete in Christ. First thing I want you to note in that phrase though and in that verse, okay, just, just, just verse 28. When we read our Bibles, we're always reminding each other, look for contrast, look for repetition, right? Uh, there is one word repeated in verse 28 three times. And we can, we can just skip by it. And yet, if he repeated a word three times, we need to go, what? He repeated that three times. That really matters. What's the word he repeats three times in verse 28? Say it out loud. Everyone. Yes, everyone. Can I remind us, and I'm reminding myself when I say this, you will never meet a human being who does not need Jesus. You will never meet a human being that does not need Jesus, which means whatever you do today, whoever you bump into, they're the everyone. And when you go to work tomorrow and whatever you do in your life, you, every person you run into is the everyone. And the reason you're bumping into them and not me is because God has you there to be that person that might proclaim and tell Christ, tell about Christ to them. Maturing, it's that we may present everyone mature. To mature means, it, it describes that which is complete or whole, wanting in nothing. Here's some other ways the Greek word for mature is defined, fully developed, um, entire, full, Grown. Paul, when he speaks in Ephesians, describes it this way. He says, maturity is attaining to the whole measure 
of the fullness of Christ, no longer infants, here's a contrast, no longer infants, rather contrast, in all things grown up into him who is the head that is Christ. Maturity is simply progressing in Christ-likeness. That it's growing in Christ-likeness. The, the, the contrast from infant to maturity. You know, um, at the first service, Chris and Kaiser White had their baby in here and I pointed to the baby and said, you know, there's, there's, there's the White's new baby. And, and, and when you see an infant and a baby, it's amazing, it's beautiful. And we look at that infant and the baby and we know the pregnancy has ended. The baby's been delivered. We look at the baby and we know now's the beginning of a lifelong process of growing and development. And if the infant doesn't grow and develop, something is terribly, tragically wrong, right? For us as Christians, when we're born again, when we place our faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we're infants. But we're not to remain there. If to remain there, something is terribly and tragically wrong. And Paul, in fact, calls some Christians infants. That is not a compliment. We were made to grow and mature and become more and more like Christ over time. The what? We tell others about Jesus. The why? To help them grow in Christ's likeness. The how? Verse 29. Note with me in your Bibles. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Toil means to labor, to exhaustion. It means to, it, it leads to your place of extreme fatigue. So you, you've gone to extreme fatigue and then he, he doesn't leave us there. He says, I toil struggling. And he introduces even, even, there's more to this than just the toil. There's the struggling. It's the Greek word agonizome, agonizome, which we get the English word agony. Paul says, I'm, I'm toiling, I'm in agony. That word agonizome in the Greek and in this time is mostly associated with athletic contests when two, two people compete and you think of a wrestling match where they wrestle and fight. I'm talking sweating and toiling and struggling to defeat the other to win the crown. I don't want you to take this to mean, gosh, the Christian life is just a sweat box. And just, is it, do I just remain exhausted? No, no, it's not. But I'll tell you this, there are seasons in our life and in the Christian life and in living out this mission that you will sweat, you will struggle. It is an agony to lead others to Christ. It is, an, it is a struggle to help them grow. If, 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 if our mission in life and this particular mission is not producing any sweat at some time, not all the times, not like burn yourself out, no, we'll talk about how he does it in a moment. No, but, but to where you carry the weight of the soul of people, you care that much, it's a weight on you. And you work toward helping them come to faith. You break a sweat in that. If that's not true, then maybe, maybe you're, you're actually cross-firing with your life. Because this mission, which is the mission for all believers, will be toil. And struggle. Now, this is very important that we note. He ends by saying, I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul, speaking 
he, well, in Acts 1.8, um, Luke's recording Jesus's words when Jesus says, but you will receive power, same Greek word as in Colossians, powerfully, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses, i.e., you will, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will tell others about me. Paul is speaking when he says his energy and he powerfully, it's clear, he's speaking of Jesus, right? Let's go a step further. He's speaking of Jesus in them, but Jesus in them, biblically, theologically, is who? He's the Holy Spirit in us. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, but Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to live in us. And the Holy Spirit's often referred to as the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth. Who, who, which one is he? He's the Holy Spirit and he indwells every believer for to have the Spirit is to be a Christian, Romans 8. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. When you believe the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God indwells us and the Holy Spirit is the, na- is the essence and nature of God, of Christ, such that Paul can say, Christ lives in me. So the Holy Spirit in me is the person of Christ in me and it's by his strength and by his power that I toil and struggle. So the issue for us as Christians is not, uh, I, I, I can't do that. The issue is I can't do that in my strength, but I can in the strength and power of the Holy Spirit who lives in me. I've all, over the years, I, you know, I, I just did, um, we, we, in our discipleship intensive, we're in this section of it around the Holy Spirit. And I just taught two messages over the last two weeks to our discipleship intensive groups. And I love teaching that because it was so significant in my own life, in my own spiritual journey, understanding the person and work of the Spirit. And how do you illustrate the power of the Spirit in the Christian life, that the power that raised Jesus from the dead and the power that created the universe lives in me. And I look in the mirror and I go, I don't see, I don't look like that, you know? Why, what's the evidence of that? Well, how to illustrate that? Over the years, you've done it with a, I've done it with a, with a bat, with a flashlight, saying the, whole, you know, the power of the Holy Spirit's in us, but until you click the flashlight on, there's no light, you know? Um, I, was gonna, I was gonna use a chainsaw for this one and I thought better of it uh, to talk about power, you know? Any, anyway, long and the short is, I thought, well, I, what could illustrate this? And I'll offer this as another in a long line of illustrations around experiencing the power. I'm talking about how do you experience the power of the Spirit? Well, think of a, uh, a Segway. You know a Segway, that little two-wheel dealie that you get on and go on tours? And you, know, you can see them around Franklin now, a little Segway trail of people going around seeing the Civil War tours. You stand on a Segway and all the power needed to move you wherever you need to go is is contained in the Segway. But if you stand on a Segway, you can stand here all day. You can push buttons and do other things. It's not gonna go anywhere. It's not like a scooter, you know, you hit the little thumb drive. The Segway's designed not to move until you lean forward. And it won't move enough until you lean forward with enough weight that if it doesn't move, like just now, you would fall. And I want to have, I just wanna suggest that many of us don't experience the power of the Spirit because many of us don't live life by leaning forward enough to go, I can't do it and Holy Spirit, unless you come through, I'm gonna fall in the baptismal. Because when you trust the Holy Spirit, you are saying, you know, I, 
I need your power, Holy Spirit. And you know, the segue, when it senses the weight go forward enough, the wheels come under to keep you from falling forward. Many of us don't experience the power of the Holy Spirit because we don't take enough risks. Can I say it like that? Because we don't, we, we, we don't, we don't take steps of obedience wherein we know I, I can't, but the Spirit can, and we take that step of faith. And in that way, we experience the power of the Spirit within us. So, I mean, why are we on the planet, ultimately? I want to say, Paul tells us, so that we would tell others about Jesus, to help them grow in Christ-likeness by the power of the Spirit until we break a sweat. That's why. That's what we do. And that's how we do it. 